readily live in the ascendancy of a civilization or during its decline. It's one of Ben's favorite games that he likes to play, his hypothetical games. You know what I'm talking about? How would we explain today's fill-in-the-blank, usually with him, it's technology, to people from the past? He likes to ask me that. What would Grandpa have thought about, you know, this piece of technology or that? Dad, what did you think about this kind of technology way back when? So, you know, we just got our iPhones. Ben and I both got iPhones. I upgraded to the iPhone 14. He got the, the iPhone 12. And he was asking me, you know, how, how would you have felt about this iPhone, you know, back in 1984 when you got your first computer? And it started me thinking about some stuff, you know, because this is a game that he likes to play. It's a game I've played through the years. How do you explain things to people from the past? Imagine, if you will, uh, Pennsylvania Gazette, Poor Richard's Almanac, Ben Franklin, uh, being done on a word processor instead of a, a hand-cranked computer or a hand-cranked uh, printer, I'm sorry. How would, how would we explain this technology of today to him? But it was that question that Ben asked me about the iPhone that got me thinking because the reality of it is, in 1984, I would not have been surprised if you had told me that, you know, some years later, 35 years later, I would have an iPhone. Why wouldn't I have been surprised? Well, that's a more complicated answer, isn't it? In 1985, I was honored to visit the USS Bowfin in Pearl Harbor. I went with two of my friends from the submarine. And what was supposed to be a 45-minute quick walkthrough tour took us about six hours. And what we had discovered that day was that the technology of submarining had certainly changed. We had nuclear power. We had better batteries. We had electronic devices. But the functionality of those things had not changed. They still did the same things that they did all those years ago. And we figured if we'd have had fuel in the bunkers, we could have taken her to sea. Couldn't dive her because she's got holes cut in her, her, her pressure hull. Sorry, couldn't come up with the word there. Kept wanting to say people tank, which is what we call it, but it's pressure hull. But we could have, uh, we could have been just as home at home on that submarine from the past as we, we were on the future, which got me thinking about submariners of that era and how they would feel on our boat. The truth of the matter is, is that technology advances, but explaining it to people of the past or the future isn't as complicated as we think. When Ben saw his first ever payphone a couple of years ago down in Redwood National Forest in California, it didn't confuse him at all. He knew exactly what it was. And in the process of knowing exactly what it was, he chose then to to demonstrate to us how to use it, and in fact wanted a quarter so he could call Grandma. I couldn't really explain to him that it was going to cost more than a quarter, and I didn't have an AT&T card anymore, so he could call my cell phone, I guess, but that was pretty much it. But he understood the technology. And what I began to understand and think about is 
that I think sometimes that conversation is backwards. It's not that we have a difficulty explaining to the past what we're doing now. That's not really the issue. I think people in the past would have looked at what we are doing today and they would not have been surprised by it. They would have been pleased by it. Remember that George Washington and the convention went and saw a steam engine working in 1787. I think what would have happened rather is that we don't understand them. We don't understand their society. We don't understand their culture. We don't understand things the way that they understood them. And I'm talking about arts and sciences. I'm not talking about cultural references. I'm talking about things that were generally taught and general, general knowledge. And because of that, we don't understand why they did things the way they did them. And we're confused because we don't grasp what's going on. I'm sitting today in what is known as the Stoa of Atalos. At least I'm pretending to anyway on the camera. The Stoa of Atalos is what you would call a porch. And a porch, known in Greek as a Stoa, is where the Stoics taught their philosophy. They would sit here and they would teach to whomever came to listen to them. And they would teach the principles of Stoicism, recognize what you can and cannot control. My favorite version of that comes from Mickey Rivers, the baseball player back in the 70s and 80s. No sense in worrying about what you got control over because you got control over it. No sense in worrying about what you can't, don't have control over because you ain't got control over it anyway. You determine your reaction to a crisis. Ignore people dominated by their own negative emotions. Master yourself and aim to be virtuous and learn to move on. This is the essence of Stoicism. And one of the leading Stoics of the late Republic era in Rome was a guy by the name of Cato, specifically Marcus Porcius Cato, or more popular, Cato the Younger. And he used to teach, consider it the greatest of all virtues, to restrain the tongue. These are the ideas of Stoicism. These are the ideas that Stoics taught. And of course, by the late Republic, Cato the Younger was almost the definition of Stoicism as, as a philosophy. More importantly, though, as a politician, he had become the chief rival to Julius Caesar. He was the chief opponent to Julius Caesar. Unlike Caesar, he did not write any books. He didn't leave us. In fact, we only have one writing of his. It's just a very short letter. Everything we know of him comes from other people. And what we know of him is that he was a firm believer in Stoicism. And he was a firm believer in a virtuous life. He was not perfect. He was not, and he acknowledged that. There were moments in his life where he was very unstoic. But as a general rule of thumb, it was his firm belief in the Republic, in the almost the divinity of the Republic, as it's referred to Catonian, Catonianism, and his just absolutely staunch 
opposition to Julius Caesar, whom he saw as a tyrant. He saw as a person trying to destroy the Republic. We've talked about this before with Brutus and Publius, and we've seen uh, those elements of it as well. Cato's opposition to Caesar would ultimately end in his death after he would be defeated. He was the, the last Republican, the last citizen defeated by, by Julius Caesar in the Roman Civil War of the mid-40s in BCE. And it was from this person that so much of our own understanding as Americans of the ideas of liberty and opposition to tyranny were born. Now, again, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about explaining things from the past or to the past from the future versus explaining things from the past to now. We today have almost no comprehension of Cato the Younger whatsoever. Now, obviously, there are historians that do. Obviously, there are television shows uh, that portray it quite well. But as a general rule of understanding, the average American has no clue of the understanding that Americans during the ratification debates had of Cato. For those people in, in 1787, 1788, the name Cato, specifically Cato the Younger, was synonymous with liberty. You understand that? We're going to get into a little bit of why here in just a bit. But, but, but for them... If you were talking about liberty, you were talking about Cato. You were talking about the ideas of the Stoic Cato, who sat in the Stoa and taught these things, and on the Senate floor of Rome, taught these things. And was such an implacable foe of Julius Caesar that when Julius Caesar finally defeated him, he committed suicide. And the reason he committed suicide was because he did not believe that Caesar had the authority to pardon him for any crime because he didn't think he'd committed a crime. He didn't believe that he had committed a crime. And so he refused, even in death, to recognize Julius Caesar's tyranny by allowing him to pardon him. Not going to happen. This was literally the definition in most American minds in 1787, 1788, of liberty. And so it was that in late September, of 1787, as the anti-federalist letters began to appear, one appeared in the New York papers, and it was a letter signed Cato. We have no real clue who that was. Nobody knows for certain, certain, sorry, not, <laughs> not Sean, Sean uh, Connery. But since no one knows for certain who it was, most most people agree that it was George Clinton, the governor of New York. Most people agree to that. Not always, not everyone, but many people understand it to have been George Clinton. George Clinton, the man for whom the term anti-federalist was invented, probably wrote these words in his first letter, signed Cato. Beware of those who wish to influence your passions and to make you dupes to their resentments and little interests. Personal invectives can never persuade, but they can always fix prejudices which candor might have removed. Those who deal in them have not your happiness at heart. 
Now, this is his first letter regarding the consideration of the Constitution and whether it should be ratified. He says these words, which have been paraphrased and used by every person with a microphone since. Do not, because you admit that something must be done, adopt anything. Attach yourselves to measures, not to men. Cato's first letter is very powerful. If you've never read it, you should look it up. It's not very long. And it's, it's clear that his intention is not to necessarily delve into the details of the Constitution as proposed. What he is concerned about is that there is this seeming move to just approve it because, well, it's new plan, let's just go, we'll just do it. We're not, there's no thought process going into it. It's almost as if you hear the words, and I know this sounds weird, it's almost as if you hear the words, we have to pass it to find out what's in it. And he's deeply concerned about that. He is also concerned about the presidency. He is concerned that the presidency is too powerful. He, oddly enough, seems to, like everyone else in the world, understand that that president is going to be George Washington. And this, rather than giving him comfort, as it did most of the people at the convention, causes him deeper concern. And that's where things begin to get interesting, because a few days later, there was a response to his letter in the newspapers. It is signed by Caesar. To this day, we do not know who that was. I have a suspicion that it was Alexander Hamilton. There are some reasons why I think that, but it is signed by Caesar. The implacable foe in history of Cato, the man who hated Cato, the Cato hated, the, the two men that just couldn't see eye to eye on anything with regards to the Republic and who fought literally to the death. Cato to try to save the Republic, Julius Caesar to reform, as he would have put it, the Republic. The letter, signed Caesar, contained this line. And it's this line that in my studies has set me back significantly. Quote, I would advise him, he's referring to Cato, to give his vote, as he will probably be one of the electors. Remember, the electors are defined in the Constitution. To the American Fabius. It will be more healthy for this country and this state that he should be induced to accept the presidency of the new government than that he should be solicited again to accept command of an army. And again, it's signed by the pen name Caesar. It's the reply to Cato's first letter, published October 1st, 1787. If you're like me, you hear those words and you're like, okay, wait, there is a lot to unpack here. Number one, why would whoever wrote this letter sign it Caesar? Knowing what most Americans believe about Cato, that Cato was the man who was trying to defend the Republic and that Julius Caesar was the man who was trying to upend it. Why would you sign it Caesar? In fact, in Cato's next response, he's going to refer to that uh, directly in, in kind of a way that's 
not very complimentary. He advises Cato to go ahead and accept the or to go ahead and accept the presidency, and then he says, "Give your vote for president to the American Fabius." The what? And then that almost implied threat. It'll be more healthy for this country, this state, that he should be induced to accept. He, Cato, the, or I'm sorry, Fabius, the American Fabius, should be induced to accept the presidency. Then that he, the American Fabius, should be solicited again to accept command of an army. This little sentence right here absolutely ignites Cato. Cato responds. He shuts the door of free deliberation. He's talking about Caesar's letter because Caesar's letter is full of why you should just accept this constitution. You should just move on. Stop, stop telling people to think about things. Just accept it. Move on. Cato's letter back. He shuts the door of deliberation and discussion and declares that you must receive this government in manner and form as it is proffered that you can neither revise nor amend it, and lastly, to close the scene. Listen to this. He insinuates that it will be more healthy for you that the American Fabius should be induced to accept the presidency of this new government than that in case you do not acquiesce. He should be solicited to command an army to enforce it upon you. Again. This was clearly folks who understood things in their era. They clearly understood what they were talking about. The writers of the, the readers of the letters in the newspapers clearly understood what all this was. They knew that not was this wasn't just mudslinging, folks. This was this was the politics of destruction. Caesar and Cato again. Didn't Cato try to save the republic? Didn't Caesar destroy the republic? Now one's calling the other. This, that, and the other, and they're both referring to this American Fabius. Who and what is this American Fabius? Of course, in Roman history, Fabius is famous as the general who defeated Hannibal in the wars against Hannibal. And he did so by employing a unique and very unRomanesque strategy, which was not to attack. He, he forced Hannibal to take the, the offensive and stretch his supply lines and all kinds of things. But the thing about Fabius was that he was, in essence, drafted by the people in Senate of Rome to become the dictator. Now, dictator has a different meaning in Rome than it does to us. What we call a dictator, they would have called a tyrant. A dictator is more of a political officer. It's more a military officer. But it is a very powerful officer, one that cannot be, uh, in many cases, overridden. When they drafted Fabius as dictator, they, they put some limits on him, things that they hadn't done before. But he made some requests that made it clear that he liked being a dictator, and he was quickly moving into tyranny. One man, one rule which, of course, as we know from Brutus and Publius, Romans cannot accept. So who is it they're talking about? As Caesar wrote those words, I would advise him, Cato, to give his vote to the American Fabius. 
And then that thread, it'll be more help, healthy and helpful to everybody if you would just accept this. Otherwise, we're going to have to draft Fabian again, Fabius, to enforce it upon you. And it's pretty clear to everyone there that what they're talking about is, that's right, the American Fabius, George Washington. George Washington, who gave his acquiescence to the Constitution and is generally acknowledged across the board as being the leader of the country. And it's very clear that, well, to many people, George Washington should just be put in charge. He should just be drafted as the American version of Fabius and put in charge of everything and force the Constitution to be accepted by all. And lest you think that this is an unusual thought process, um, I was having a conversation with my wife the other day. My beloved wife, who said to me, well, maybe we're at the point now where, where we kind of almost need a strong dictatorship type leader, a, a not a dictator, she she insisted, but but someone who can make the rules and, and make us respond to them. Which is exactly what Caesar in his letter back to Cato is calling for. And Cato's response is, look what he's doing. He's threatening you. He is making a, th- I'm Cato. I'm the Republican. I'm the virtuous one. I'm the stoic. These emotional men, small men who are involved with their petty interests and the like are willing to unleash the American Fabius, George Washington, on you and enforce this upon you via arms. And how is that any different from what's, what we just threw off? How is it any better? The truth is, I think George Washington would have been appalled by that letter. I think that whoever wrote it as Caesar to Cato made a very bad tactical publicity mistake. There's a reason why Caesar's letters back to Cato really haven't gone anywhere in history, because they they represent something that to us may not make a whole lot of sense, but to Americans of 1787-1788 would have been a grave anathema. The idea of using force to inflict the Constitution on Americans might have made sense in a practical sense, but in the sense of liberty, and George Washington would have been the first to tell you this, would have been very bad. Very, very, very bad. And probably would have failed. The reason most Americans understood these things is they were reading them in the paper. When we read them, we doesn't mean squat to us. It's just a bunch of letters in a newspaper that we don't get. But for Americans in 1787, this particular debate and this idea of Cato, the younger, as the definition of liberty had deep meaning. In 1713, a man by the name of Joseph Adamson had written, Joseph Addison, sorry, not Adamson, Joe Adamson was my master chief in the Navy. Joseph Addison wrote a play 
called Cato a tragedy. I told you before that Cato had died, self-inflicted, when defeated by Caesar as the last standing Republican standing in the way of Julius Caesar taking over. It is this play portraying Cato's death that virtually every American and every Englishman in the entire world not only had seen, but probably owned a copy of and had seen produced if they had not at some point acted in it. This play was so popular and so ingrained in the English American psyche that even George III, the tyrant, acted in this play as a young man. There is a line in this play that says, an English-bred man is an Englishman. It's a paraphrase, but it's close enough. And George III, as a child, playing that role and delivered that line on stage in London, which came with great significance because George III was the first of the Georges actually born in England and always considered himself an Englishman, not a German. This play by Addison is so deeply ingrained in Americanism and it's so deeply ingrained in our understanding of liberty that I would dare say to you that most of the understanding of the depth of Cato's teachings about liberty and what he represented come from this play. What do I mean? When Washington, George, was on campaigning during the French and Indian Wars, he wrote a letter home saying that I'd much rather be home performing in, in Cato. It's much more pleasant. In the winter of 1778, at Valley Forge, as the army was starving, as the difficulties were mounting, as it seemed like all hope was lost, George Washington gathered his officers, and they prepared a big room, the stage, and they brought all the troops in, the entire Continental Army at Valley Forge. And they performed that play, Cato the Younger's play to inspire the men, to remind them why, again, they were doing this. And it's, it seems odd because it's a play about defeat. It's a play that ends with Cato killing himself in the face of utter destruction, in the face of the loss of the Republic. Why would you put on a play like that to men who are losing the war and expect them to motivate them? This play, this story of Cato has so deep an impact that even Cato's tragic death at the end of this, and you need to understand how Cato died. You need to understand that after Cato was defeated, Scipius uh, was defeated by, by, by 
Caesar. Caesar was approaching Utica in North Africa where, where Cato was, and he kept sending him letters. Please surrender. I don't want to harm you. Please surrender. I want us to be friends. Please, I beg you, join me, and we will reform the republic. And Cato's responses were, I want to save the republic. You went to destroy it. And each day, as Caesar got closer and closer and closer, and finally, the night before, as Caesar waited outside the city for the dawn, Cato dined with his sons, and they discussed whether or not there was an afterlife. There is a whole lot of stoicism in modern understanding of Christianity. We don't have time to get into all that, but if you want to do an interesting side dive, that's a good place to start. They discussed whether or not there was an afterlife. His sons felt, no, there isn't. Cato, of course, insisted that there must be, because if not, why live a virtuous life at all? Why even try? If there is no afterlife, his sons were concerned with his discussion. And so they had his servant take away his sword that he normally slept with. Cato awoke in the middle of the night, couldn't find his sword, called the servant. Where's my sword? And the servant explained, your, your sons made me take it away from you. He punched the servant and in doing so broke his hand, but demanded that he get his sword back. The servant brought a sword back. And as the sun rose on that morning, Cato tried to stab himself to death and failed because of his broken hand. I've broken my hand. I can tell you that's it's hard to do. In fact, I kind of broke it in the same way I didn't punch a person, but, you know, same kind of thing. <coughs> At the end of the day, the doctor was called. He sewed Cato back up, and Cato appeared to be out of immediate danger. But Caesar was still approaching. Cato rose up, reached with his own hands, and ripped out the stitches, declaring that it would be better to die than to live one day, one moment, under Caesar's tyranny. The play by Addison captures this deeply. The attitude of, it is better to die on your feet than to serve a tyrant. But this play gives us so much more than just that. The story of Cato gives us so much more than just that. In fact, some years before, Patrick Henry had cried aloud, in the Virginia legislature, give me liberty or give me death. That, my friends, is a quote from the play attributed to Cato. And were that not enough to inspire Americans to stand for liberty against the tyranny of George III? Nathan Hale, the spy captured by the British, and hung for being a spy, uttered those famous words, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Again, directly from the story of Cato, the words of Cato attributed to him by Joseph Addison. 
you begin to see now why we lack our understanding of what they understood about things and why it is that they would not be surprised by what has changed or happened to us in the ensuing years. It is us that do not understand those things. And because we do not understand those things, we do not value the same things that they value. We do not understand the simple reality. Every moment, every society, every free nation comes to the moment, the time, when they must choose much like the men at Valley Forge had to choose. Do we choose Cato the Younger, or do we choose Caesar? And unfortunately, throughout most of history, the choice has been Caesar far more than it was ever Cato. Is that because we don't understand it? Or because Caesar offers much better inducements. If we don't understand it, how would we know?